hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Kelly Shaw. Kelly is the Managing Director at Case Bar, a salon with a touch of the spa environment based in Hampshire. Kelly, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day. Lovely, lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for, of course, taking the time to uh, to join us. And the purpose of this discussion um, is to really establish your take on leadership, Kelly. So if we start with that, I think it's fair to say that leadership as a whole is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the COVID-19 situation, no less, and business leaders having to really navigate their way through this uh, pandemic in what's really uncharted territory. Tell me, for somebody working within your industry how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks with everything shutting down because i can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge in that respect um definitely i mean obviously it's unprecedented for for all of us at the the moment and i think everybody's trying to find their feet and do the best they can um i think you know it really will it really will acetate who are the leaders, um, whatever industry, whatever sector you want to look at. Um, if I look at my business and my industry, for example, um, I knew straight away as soon as all of this started that I had to make sure that my leadership position within my team was fully cemented. No matter what I had going on in my head, I had a team that I had to engage with and to make them feel secure and that, you know, with all the chaos that was going around and all the uncertainty, that at least they had somebody to look to that was giving them direction and that would help ease their fears and their concerns at that time. I think you've raised some very, very important points there, uh, Kelly. The need for leaders to keep the communication channels open on the one hand, very, very important, because... On the other, there are going to be a lot of people looking to the leaders of their businesses for some much-needed reassurance at the present time, aren't there? They're going to want answers amid the uncertainty of what the future really holds. And when those running the business may not necessarily know that much more than those around them, that can come with an awful amount of pressure, can't it? Trying to just keep that communication um, flowing, really, and provide that reassurance. Oh, definitely. And obviously, the longer the the situation goes on, um, you know, at the beginning, I mean, me and my team have been, you know, kept in in, in good contact while we've uh, we've all been away from the business. And, you know, I think at this time, my job as a leader has been to reassure them. Um, It's been to, you know, give them as much information as I possibly can, but also to to just make it a little bit lighthearted sometimes and with a lot of pressures, with a lot of uncertainties, um, you know, especially in our industry, mental health is such a big thing. So to be able to, you know, be available for people to talk to, talk through concerns, even if you might not have all the answers and just give that little bit of reassurance and that, you know, little bit of fun um, and, you know, focus on the positives of what will be happening when we do come back rather than, any restrictions or you know any um anything that we're not sure of then let's look at the bigger picture for when it when it can happen 
Mm. I suppose it all boils down on that side of things to people management, doesn't it? Which is a very important um, element of leadership. And you're exactly right, uh, Kelly, in saying that business is having to plan for certain eventualities and look to the future and be proactive as well as being reactive. And that's also really come under the microscope at the moment, hasn't it? Um, Especially with regards to introducing lockdown restrictions. Um, We look at the example of Italy um, on one hand, where they went into lockdown as early as the 9th of March, and then we didn't follow suit until the 23rd. So we kind of took a little bit more of a laissez-faire approach initially, just sit back, see what happens, then take action from there. Um, If we sort of take that idea away from politics and away from COVID-19 just for a moment, would you describe yourself in the day-to-day running of the business as a leader that likes to dive in on issues when they arise and get on top of them as soon as possible? Or do you like to sit back a bit, see how matters develop, and then sort of take measured action from that stage? I think, to be fair, there's a little bit of both, but probably the former more so. Um, you know, there's it's a it's a competitive industry out there. So um, to always be looking at what changes may need to be taken in place, um, you know, it, I feel it's my job to make sure that my team have got all the resources they need, they've got the skills they need to do their jobs. Um, and that I'm creating an environment where they'll take responsibility and um, and work with me on the journey to you know wherever it is that we're we're we're, we're going. Um, so I think you've got to be a little bit at the forefront to really make sure that you're tackling things as and when they come up, rather than maybe resting and waiting to see what happens. I prefer to be a bit more proactive in that respect. Can certainly see the uh, the merit in uh, that approach uh, for sure, Kelly. And um, it's intriguing that, of course, that word team came up again there. It's so important um, as a leader, as we've mentioned, um, already to be able to uh, take people with you. And there's so much that goes into that, of course, people management, that sort of thing. But we've heard during this time, interestingly enough, that there have been so many positive stories within businesses of people who've really just plugged away, got on with the task at hand and really brought out the best in themselves during this time of adversity. And I think that's a testament to the way that leaders have essentially looked after the interests of their uh, colleagues and um, their employees as well. From your point of view, Kelly, have you been inspired by how the people around you have reacted to all of this? Um, I have really with, um, you know, in definitely a lot of other salon owners that I'm in contact with. I mean, I think my industry in particular has really rallied around each other and has really supported each other. And, you know, some of the the different um, organising bodies um, have really put us first and they're, they're trying to give us all the information and they're sort of leading by example because you know they know no more than we do <laughs> but they're actually again you know like I would for my team I've got somebody there that's actually supporting me um, a lot of the companies that we work with have been fantastic with you know putting on free trainings doing webinars and really helping to keep everybody informed as much as possible and it's it's really I, I feel a big shift within the industry that's been fantastic with a lot more people coming together and supporting and that's one of the benefits that I think has come out of this situation. Mm, exactly it has brought people uh, much closer together and there's also this experience now that everybody's really had to venture out of their comfort zone which is really really helpful um, in development of course um, not only as employees but also as leaders and that experience of crisis management um, as well in a way that's also going to breed resilience if anything else going forward from here definitely definitely i mean if you you know, this is something that nobody had ever, you know, envisaged would ever happen. So, you know, the fact that we have all dealt with it 
that we've, you know, we're still running our businesses in a way that we can. We've had to completely look at things from perspective. You know, I'm such a hands-on industry that the fact of not working and touching people has made us really have to think outside the box in what we can do for our clients and to still keep our businesses fresh um, and alive. And that's going to come down to another important element of leadership, which is innovation, adaptability and flexibility, isn't it? As we move into this new normal, try to get to grips with these new COVID secure guidelines that are going to be uh, coming out and really being able to um, operate going forward. Exactly. And I think that's really important when it comes to leadership, because, you know, you can't take a a head in the sand approach to this and just think it's all going to go back to normal and be okay. You know, as as entrepreneurs and leaders, you sort of have to fight for your business and it's your, your responsibility to come up with those other ideas, those other ways and be a, you know, use a bit of initiative. And that's what then will inspire your team and hopefully others around to do the same sort of thing. I think that's absolutely right, Kelly. And um, we talked about how inspiring the reaction of um, the industry um, has been, and I'm sure it will continue to be as it has to innovate going forwards from here. But if we look back a little bit, what would you say have been the inspirations for you throughout your career as you've developed that maybe had a profound influence on your leadership style? Um, Oh, I don't know. Hard one. Um, I think, again, I think it's probably a bit later in life, it would have been coming through some of the female leaders that I've met within this industry. I mean, it's sort of, you know, you take it back right back to sort of Estee Lauder and the fact that, you know, you you looked at these women that had created these companies um, and were working within this industry. Um, Another lady that's a big part of my um, sort of inspiration was uh, Jane Werwind, who was the founder of uh, Dermalogica. And, you know, I've in her grow and her leadership and how she's really rallied behind women and women entrepreneurs um, and that's something that you know now that I've moved into um, salon business coaching as well as having the, um, the the business the salon case bar I'm now able to help build other leaders within their salons which I find very um, very rewarding as well. Mm, that's um quite um incredible as an example um for sure there and considering that these are very notable individuals within the uh, the business world do you think that maybe business leaders um receive um the recognition that they ought to um as um leaders uh, Kelly because we do tend to associate leadership um especially in this country with things such as politics and celebrity and sports personalities um as well and in the business world i think recognition for certain um very influential individuals can often fall by the wayside um, in comparison yeah no i would yeah i would agree with that i mean there's definitely you know there's a lot of uh, very um successful um business leaders out there that maybe don't get that recognition if they're not on a uh, reality tv show or um having some sort of view in the public eye um, there's, you know, when you come across, you can sort of go to different um, conferences and things and, and the people that you come across, their stories are astounding, really, of, um, of what they've, you know, the adversity they've gone through and uh, the leadership qualities they show. So I think that, that can be lacking sometimes, for sure. Mm. I would certainly um, align myself with that view as well, Kelly. And let's hope, that, of course, that that recognition can certainly improve along with the positive things that we've uh, seen um, during this uh, pandemic. There's been a great deal of recognition, for example, for those on the uh, the front line, NHS and care staff, uh, for starters. And 
if we do think about um, the future just for a moment, if, say, we were to address a young person who is about to embark on their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them based upon your own business experience, Kelly? I think I think communication has got to be the key. I mean, that's something I learned more and more as I've gone through my career is that the more you can communicate with people, the more open you are, um, then really that's where people will become trusting of you. Um, they'll listen, they'll trust the process. Um, but I think that's really the key thing is looking at open communication and just, you know, just be yourself and be, you know, be truthful. I think that's very sound advice um, indeed, uh, Kelly. And if we do think about um, the long term now, before we do wrap things up um, on the uh, the programme today, um, what do you envision the next year holds for yourself and for Bar as we begin to emerge from this COVID-19 pandemic? And also, what do you hope to achieve, not just in getting through it, but also beyond then? Well, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, obviously, we're very excited and can't wait to get back to work and to be able to, uh, you know, to see all of our clients again. We're looking at um, restructuring the business and moving into more sort of advanced treatments, um, becoming more specialist in the area that we do specialise in, which is skin. And and that's a focus that we'd started to, to sort of move along this journey before um, the pandemic. And so it's something that we will definitely be picking up with and moving forward. And also with growing the team, I mean, my um, my goal for Case Bar is that I've created a self-managing team that actually run this business for me. So myself as the leader with the overall vision, but with my team executing um, all of those plans and actually keeping that business and growing it for me. And that's what we'll be focusing on over the next 12 months. Mm, certainly sounds like um, exciting times, uh, Kelly. And I think that when things do start to reopen and we start to understand what exactly this new normal is going to look like, it would be really uh, beneficial to perhaps have you back on the uh, the programme to catch up on what is uh, going on and how um, Case Bar is uh, doing um, in that new environment, considering especially how informative it's been having you on the programme today. Oh, no, that would be lovely. No, I'd be more than happy to. I'm very excited to... Uh to see what the future holds over these next few months as, as daunting as it may be it's um I, I think it's just another another sort of clog in the wheels we'll we'll get through it and it will come out the other side even better Mm, I really, really hope so, uh, Kelly. And let's hope we do start seeing that upward trajectory sooner rather than later, for sure. I must say it's been a real pleasure, um, as well as um, a really insightful experience having you um, on today. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak with me for the benefit of our listeners. It's been really, really enjoyable. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kelly. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime, for sure. You too. That was Kelly Shaw, the Managing Director at Case Bar. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, Pimford does work in uh, uh, across 
the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face mm. the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to... Um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Elizabeth, quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think there, there 
the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people for uh, youngsters and you know school kids it will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money so the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um, the better I think because that then will start to promote a culture of of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in 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 our um, in our country, without a doubt, it's because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah, and I think as um, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at and a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, uh, Liz. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. 
the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in- intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rule maker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation, and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece, you know. Famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, I mean, absolutely, um, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. Absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate. Um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be 
protecting. The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. But if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we if we were to if I were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory reform, you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here. This is already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at. Um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organizations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organizations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation, uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So, relationship building. Um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I, I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we, we, I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, 
we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. That you know, they they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just, um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another, of other things, promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.